Welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and I'm the host of the podcast and this is my podcast talking to coaches about coaching. And today we have got Scotty Williams back again to talk to me. Thanks for coming in, Scotty. Thanks for having me once again, mate. Always a pleasure. Now, I just have to bring this up. I gave a coaching session to a client of mine last week, and he told me, who was that smart, who's that smart person that you always have on your podcast talking about golf fitness? And I thought you were about to I, say smart ass. I'm glad you're <laughs> smart person. I thought, he can't be talking about you. He's got to be talking about <laughs> someone else, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure uh, it's he, confused he, identity. He is impressed with your um expertise and experience in this space so that was that was pretty cool to hear from him so uh, we are getting some traction out there which is really cool no that's not nice to hear i mean we as as you know mate we enjoy talking about this stuff so if other people can get something out of it that's really great it is i keep telling people i don't really care how many people download the podcast because i'm just enjoying talking to different coaches about everything so it's always pretty cool yeah 100 percent so i thought today that we would talk about periodization which is something that doesn't come up a whole lot in golf um, or in the past. It probably hasn't. Probably getting more traction these days. But um, I thought we'd do a part one and a part two on this topic. So we get you in first on a part one and talk about periodization from a physical training perspective. And I'll get a golf coach in at some point. I'll probably get Pulowski in at some point in time. Get him, get him back in, mate. Pull him That's out of the ball. And talk about it from a golf skills training perspective. But if I was to ask you that question up front, what is periodization to you? If you were asked to define what periodization was, how would you actually come at that question? Yeah, well, it's obviously a a, a planned, organized way to um, force adaptation into a sports person or an athlete so that they can peak at the right time with improved performance. So I, I could have actually written a better description than that, but you put me on the spot. That's off the top of my head. But that, that, that's, it's really um, built on the premise that if we structure practice and training in a certain way, we'll get a better result than if we just do the same thing the whole time. That's, that's the premise. And it certainly, it is true. And I've seen it myself and... Um, Knowing exactly which ways to program and, and adapt and, and organize your training is obviously that's where that you know they always say it's the art and science of coaching, the art and science of strength and conditioning as well, um, and it, it it's you know can lead to some very interesting debates and discussions. But the fact is that we, I guess, pretty much all universally agree that there it is there is a more optimal way to go about organizing our training so that the athlete is ready to perform better at the time. Yeah, I'm certainly on the same page. And um, I always like uh, giving you a little surprise questions. Um, can't <laughs> you give you too much again. heads up. No, that's <laughs> always good. But, yeah, I, I, I tend to think of it as creating a plan to perform at the highest possible standard um, at the appropriate time. Yeah, where it counts. Tend to, yeah. yeah, that's where I tend to come from. So we've certainly got general ideas there on what periodization actually is. Um, so <laughs> – if again, if we asked you what the basics of periodization are, how mm. would you come at that question? What are the basics? Yeah, well, so so this is where, as I sort of we quickly discussed before we we went on air here, um, there's there really is two different ways to kind of describe 
periodization. And, you know, I always find myself kind of flipping back and forward and sort of trying to mesh the two, which is sort of the way we would train a sports person in terms of their skills practice and their competition, et cetera, which is when we talk about things like, um, you know, general preparation phase, specific phase, pre-competition and, and competition phases. Whereas um, really from a physical perspective, when we're talking about strength and conditioning and, and the physical training of an athlete, we talk more about sort of, you know, um, annual and macro and micro cycles and obviously making sure that we peak and taper at the right time. Um, so I, I tend to come at it more from a, the perspective of what's actually happening inside the, the body with its adaptation and, the, and the, the response to training is probably more, more where I'm at because obviously what we're trying to do is, is um, force adaptation so that our athletes become you know, more flexible, stronger, better endurance and more power. That's what, what I'm trying to do in sort of my silo that I'm working in. And obviously, there is a, 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 you know, a quick peaking and tapering phase before the actual competition, in this case, golf. Um, so it's really a case of you know, how much time have I got to work with the athlete before they need to perform at their best again. And then I sort of need to shrink everything down. And I guess that's where things get a bit more complex in a sport like golf that doesn't have your typical... Um, even a team sport is uh, – so obviously most of this ca- has come from training Olympic athletes where you've got a four-year cycle with with annual cycles that might have a world championships or a national championships and then focusing towards the Olympics. It's then been borrowed by team sport where you have you know, a pre-season, a season, a finals campaign, and then an off-season. And, and so a lot of sports operate that way. But then you get golf where you go, well, we kind of pretend that we have that, but really – that's not how it plays out at all. And we so we end up having these little micro cycles and macro cycles that are all squished in different, um, you know, three weeks here, seven weeks, two weeks, four weeks, five weeks, what do we do? So that it becomes quite complex in the sport of golf. Um, but I guess that's going to be Nick's problem. <laughs> if you speak to, 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 you know, you and Nick can discuss that on another day. So I could probably talk more about the way I see it from my perspective and try and almost look at it more from a um, an ideal world scenario before we start having to water it down for golf, which we often do. Well, I'm, I'm keen to come back to that point you made about single peak sports versus golf, where it is it is a fairly consistent calendar of, of and if you're going to argue, even the tour players are trying to peak for say four or five tournaments per year, as opposed to just heading for that that grand final or that those championships things, but. Talk me through the different cycles that you spoke about just then before. So what cycles are involved in a periodized plan? Yeah, so um, so typically with cycles, we'd be looking at, so obviously an Olympic cycle would be a four-year cycle. And now, you know, strangely, golf is actually sort of in that now. So, um, you know, being an Olympic sport, um, the annual cycle is, as it sounds, it's a 12-month um a 12-month cycle. A macro cycle is anywhere from sort of one to, to maybe three months. Um, and so when we talk about a cycle, it's basically the point at which theoretically the the regime would repeat itself. So if you've got, you know, five training sessions a week um, and that's your micro cycle, often a micro cycle matches up with a week, but it could be 10 days or two weeks. But a micro cycle is basically what you do and then you're going to do it again next week. 
So if you train Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, let's just say, um, and then you're going to repeat that again next week, that's your micro cycle. Um, and then your nano cycle could be a one, maybe even two or three day cycle within that. So the only way that any of that really makes any sense is when you're trying to look at what's actually happening with adaptation. So I, I tend to look at periodization um, with three basic broad principles, and that is adaptation response and the need for progress- progressive overload because if your body's adapted and you train it exactly the same next week, you're going to get a diminishing return because your body's already adapted to that. So, you know, if you've if you uh, if you can run three kilometers but you find it challenging, the second week it's not quite as hard. The third week it might be quite easy. You need to go a bit further or faster or whatever. Um, the second principle is transference. So that is one physical capacity transferring to another. And because that exists and we get these triangular relationships between, say, for example, hypertrophy, which is increasing your muscle mass, strength, and speed, we can use, we can actually augment that and use that triangular relationship to make our training a bit more bang for our buck. Um, the thir- and the third one is timing and planning. So basically knowing knowing those those two principles before, adaptation response and and the uh, transference of different capacities, we can then time and plan everything so that we maximize uh, what actually occurs within the human body. That's what we're actually trying to do from a physical perspective. Okay, that's really cool. So let's come at it from a single peak sport to start with. So we've got... Um, we're in Victoria. Let's let's talk about Australian rules football. So you got these these people that are coming out at it with the the goal to do a preseason, play the season, and peak for the grand final. Mm. So what? How would they set up their training at the, in the first part of that training program? Yeah. So obviously, um, and and the it's varied over the years because probably ten to fifteen years ago, well, fifteen to twenty years ago, when this stuff was really coming into vogue it was often that um you know they they the athletes wouldn't touch the football for the first six to eight weeks and um what they realized is that they're perhaps creating superior athletes that had no skill so you know they've sort of learned that they need to um even a quite a physiological sport like football um there's still so much skill involved that they've got to make sure that they're um working on skill concurrently which is obviously what we'd need to do in golf as well um so, so, but typically it's a lot more physiological. They're going to be challenging endurance and strength initially. Um, now, yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of organized my thoughts around this to, to try and sort of almost, I reverse engineer it. You asked me this question, I'm thinking that's sort of the outcome, but, but really what we need to understand is that, um, so with, with transference, there's this principle called the residual training effect. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. You can explain that to me. Okay, very good. So if you were to, let's just take an exercise that used to be banned in golf, which is bench press, just because it feels naughty, it feels naughty to talk about it. So let's just, say, <laughs> let's just say someone could bench press 70 kilograms and then we train them up maybe over, say, a, an eight-week period to the point where they can now bench press 100 kilograms for however many reps you like. Let's just call it one rep. If you were then to get them to take a month off, so 30 days off bench press, 
no push-ups either. Let's just call it they're doing something else. How much do you think they could bench press after having a month of detraining? A month of detraining. So we're talking maximal strength here. Yeah, I don't know how quickly would it would it drop off. You would you lose fifty percent inside of a month? You would lose technically. Now this this holds much more true when you're talking about properly trained athletes. So um, decent training age, you would lose technically between probably one and five percent. Oh, wow. Is it only a small amount like that? I would have thought it'd be a lot higher than that. Only a small amount. Aerobic training. Let's just say you were to give yourself, um, I don't know, a five-kilometer time trial, on even on a bike, whatever, 5K time trial, and you were to measure measure your time. So let's just call it it's an endurance um event so your aerobics let's say we're testing your aerobic system that's actually not the best way to test your aerobic system but let's just say that's that's our test and let's just say you do that five kilometer bike ride let's say a 10k bike ride 10k bike ride in i don't know maybe say 20 minutes let's let's say you've gone from 30 minutes and you've improved down to 20 minutes and you take a month off and then we test now, you again. Now, based on my personal experience in this space, <laughs> um, I'm going to go higher on this one again because I think that you lose this conditioning easier than you would lose strength conditioning. So I'm going to go, you said 2 to 3% earlier on. I'm going to go with 10 to 15% in the cardio space. Okay, yeah. So you've, you've, um, you've trimmed it down a bit here, definitely getting closer. So it's actually still only about 2 to 3%. Oh, wow. Okay. In a well-trained athlete. So maximal strength and aerobic endurance hold on pretty well. They don't decay very quickly. Um, if you were to go out and, and uh, kill yourself with, say, 10 400-meter sprints around an oval where we're training the lactic acid system, for want of a better description, um, so glycolytic anaerobic work where we're pushing the anaerobic threshold, and you were to say, I don't know, get to the point where you've gone from running two minutes per 400 down to one minute per 400, and you can do that 10 times. So let's say the 10th one, you can still knock out a one minute 400. I don't know who we're talking about here. It's not me. But anyway, let's just say that you trained your system that well, so you got to that point. How much would that drop off? <laughs> I'm, I'm getting so far out with these guesses. So I'm going to go for the same answer as before, <laughs> just a, a few percent. So that one actually will fall off a bit quicker. That one will fall off a bit quicker. So you start to lose, um, you're probably hanging on for 2 to 3% for about two weeks. Then it starts to decay pretty steeply after that. So your ability to sort of repeat, go, repeat and go, repeat and go, which would be good, really important for a sport like AFL football um, or soccer, or any sport where your heart rate's going to get up and you need to be able to keep going and keep going again to compete with your opponents, that's, you can't let that one sit on the vine for too long. You're going to need to do it. So obviously in-season training for them is going to have to require some of that higher-intensity work. And that's a challenge for them because they're trying to rest the players midweek, but they might need to have a pretty solid hit out maybe on the Tuesday, something like that, if they've played on the Saturday. Um so then the final the final one that we need to know about is speed. So let's just say let's just say you could run 100 meters in 15 seconds and then over 6 weeks because you're working with me and I'm an excellent trainer, I get you down to 10 seconds 
right? <laughs> That's never yeah. going to happen. It's more like six <laughs> years. Anyway, let's just say that happens though. Um, uh, how long? It's, it's, so now we're actually looking at, at what point in time do we get that significant drop-off? So how long until we start getting significant drop-off with speed? Okay, I think this would be pretty tied closely to anaerobic stuff we just spoke about. So I think this will, again, you probably hold on to it at the start, but it would fall off a cliff pretty quickly, I would have thought. Yeah, so this we lose this one pretty quickly. So after five to seven days, you start to lose speed because it's your, your nervous system is highly adaptable. So if you leave it, your, your nervous system along, alone for too long, it will start to detrain. So staying sharp for any kind of sport. Now, this is where skill becomes really important because skill is kind of speed-based, your ability for your brain to connect all the dots really quickly and execute a skill, albeit very smoothly. Um, that's your nervous system being primed. So you, it needs to be fresh, but it also needs to be highly trained. So knowing that we have those sort of those capacities and that they decay at different rates, that's where we can form our pre-season training around doing some really good foundational work, which is maximal strength and endurance. And then as we get closer to the competition, we can sharpen up with some more speed work. Um, it also happens that biomechanically, it's a sounder way to go where we create that stable base and then we then we speed it up and make sure that the skill actually holds together. So that it makes sense from that perspective. But essentially, we need to be doing the speed work closer to the actual session because um, you need to be sharp for performance. And we can't, if we've done speed work three months ago and then we haven't touched it, it's almost it's like, it's like you never did it. Exactly. So we, we layer our capacities in that order for various reasons, um, both biomechanical, but also sort of energy system. Um, and basically, I guess, effectively, mostly coming down to that residual training effect. So, so it yeah. certainly makes common sense as well. So again, it's about setting the foundations in place early on for the correct areas and then continuing to build on those as you go along. Um, but again, you have to have that, that, that sports science understanding of what drops off and when and how you can keep certain areas going um, by doing certain types of training. But there's other areas that you have to hit uh, continuously throughout the year so you don't lose it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, um, some of this um, doesn't necessarily get to come to fruition if we're working with lowly trained athletes, because obviously if you're sort of saying, well, I want to smash them with endurance works and, and maximal strength work, and it's their first year of training, well, that's going to have to look different again, because we're going to need to have to build them up from a lower level. So our maximal strength training is, isn't actually going to probably occur until year two. Um, and... And then you can, unfortunately, you can get athletes that have been injured or perhaps they've got a couple of training years under their belt, but then they've let themselves go to seed because all they're doing is competing. And so you're not necessarily working with that athlete again in year three or four. So, you know, this is all great on paper, but only with athletes that are actually upkeeping their training. And that that it, uh, that gives me a few other questions to come to mind, but I'm going to cover off on some of those a bit later on because I think um, we can talk about how we deal with um, people training skills when they're working on in on heavy physical loads as well because that can obviously play a fairly big impact on how well they can perform the skill when they're working hard in the gym at the same time. Certainly a, a challenging space to be involved with. Absolutely, absolutely. 
So once you've set that base, you've gone through that that first kind of phase, you start to move into some early competition. So if they get for that single single peak sport, um, mm. how does the training change? So do we just try and keep that those standard uh, levels the same or are we still trying to increase them as we go through into the season or how does that actually change that training now? Yeah, well, I mean, it, obviously it depends It depends on the athlete. And I, I know that in um, sort of squad settings with team sports, often they'll be they'll sort of have their first and second year athletes and then they might have their third and fourth year athletes because they're, they're working on different things. So often the, the general preparation phase might have to go longer for the less experienced, less developed athlete. Um, but, but if you were sort of just to generalize across a squad, you're going to be doing general prep phase, which is, um, you know, screening injury prevention, strength work, endurance work, and mobility work. So basically building that engine and, and machinery. Um, and then you're going to move into a more of a specific phase where we transfer to, to power. Um, and obviously some of the game specific practices going to be coming in. Um, but, you know, and there is, sometimes there is, and that's not even necessarily a problem, but there can be a bit of a disconnect between the skills-based stuff, uh, you know, that the coach is actually working on versus what the the conditioning work is going on in the gym. Um, probably one of the biggest things that the strength and conditioning coach needs to pay attention to is what how much physical load is actually occurring with some of this game-based practice that's going on, particularly in team sports. So in a sense, they might have actually been out there doing two hours of lactic acid training with repeat efforts, Um that need not be your same session that you do later in the afternoon or in the morning, for example. So that's probably one of the the biggest, and that's where obviously we've talked about load monitoring before, where that where that comes into into um, into use. So, but generally there tends to be more of a move towards power training um, and getting a little bit more specific with the movements. So exercise selection can definitely change from a strength and conditioning. Uh, point of view, just to support the athlete um, and getting a little bit more biomechanical with what we do. Cool. So it sounds like we shift from more more compound based stuff early on to more more sports specific stuff as we as we shift yeah. closer towards competition. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes lots of sense. Um, I'll come back to the the um, monitoring athletes because I do want to. I heard a good podcast from the Whoop Band guys the other day um, about this topic. So I thought that was perfect timing. Coming have, we got, have, we our, have we got our sponsorship yet? <laughs> No, we haven't yet. I actually oh. heard from the guy that actually came up with the whip band. So oh, he wow. he was he was talking about how he um how he kind of came up up with the idea and the, the things that they they track and how they track it. So we'll we'll certainly come come back to that. But so this theory all works great, um, and I like the way that you said that you've got to make sure the plan suits the individual athlete because obviously it's going to be different, um, especially in a, in a physical sport like Australian rules football. If they're coming into a season and they've got a few injuries that they've picked up throughout the games, their training is going to look different coming into finals if you're just trying to nurse that player through as opposed to someone who's just gone up to peak textbook style and has made, managed to to come into the, the final series in, in peak, uh, peak form. Yeah. So that's obviously important as well. Mm. Um how do we do this stuff in golf? Because golf's a different beast. Golf's you're coming at it from if we come at it from a tour player's point of view, that's probably the is where you would apply this type of training 
in a full-on setting, in a tour player setting. Um, they're trying to peak for four, five, six tournaments per year maybe mm. um, that are spread out across a 12-month period. How do we do this in a golf setting? So how do you tweak this stuff for those golfers coming to you for this type of training? Yeah, so so if we were to look at um, – so what I've – what I've settled on myself probably in the last five years working with working with um, competitive golfers is that let's just say we have our our four phases. So we've got our general prep phase where we're doing our screening, injury prevention, strength and endurance work. We have our specific uh, phase where we're getting more specific to the golf swing and we're going to be training some extra power. Then we have our pre-competition optimization realization where we're doing some speed work because we need to sharpen that nervous system up with a little taper at the end to make sure that they freshen up and that they're actually fully recovered and then we have our competition week which is basically where we you know hopefully get a set plan that's you know slightly adaptable and flexible but assuming that the the travel day is on the the monday um you know tuesday so the monday night is an opportunity to do our maintenance work um you know, that, and that training can also sort of offset the the negatives of of, tra- of actual travel. So we sort of have our, our four different phases. And so what I what I would tend to do, uh, what I because uh, it's, it's it really is an ideal, but I've made peace with it. I've made peace with it <laughs> because my number one frustration is is training high level golfers that year on year have not actually physically improved. I just, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. There's way too much acceptance of it. And um, all I, whereas I say their numbers should be going up. Now, if the setbacks are injury, that's just another challenge. It needs to be taken head on as well. Um, so, that, And if it's if it's not recovering too much, uh, well enough, we can hit that as well. And we've talked about all these things before. So for my, my thing is if they're not improving 10 to 15% a year, what are they doing? Not the right stuff. So my, my so in in needing to sort of milk that 10 to 15% out of the system that's not ideal, I basically shrink down those four phases to fit the gap. So if there's, let's just say there's seven weeks where they might have a few small tournaments, but they, you know, some of them will literally say, but mate, I honestly don't care if I'm sore. I don't care what happens in that tournament, which is so, it's really nice when they say, a lot of golfers are actually saying that these days, which is, which is great. And sometimes they'll actually, during this sort of heavier training phase, they'll actually rip out a win and you go, wow, wow, what happened there? It's possible, right? So and that's sort of yeah, that's a, it's a great great thing to happen because it sort of means that we can really set down what we believe to be ideal and sort of stick to that plan um, based on daily how they how they're responding on a daily basis, but the plan still being the plan. So, so if there's a seven week gap, let's just say between their sort of main peaks, I, I would say well let's do two weeks of general prep, um, two weeks of specific, two weeks of um, Optim- optimization realization and then a taper at the end or maybe even three weeks of general prep at the start depending on who we're dealing with so um that's what i'll do and if there's three weeks you'd almost go you know one one half half something like that so i i, I tend to set my players up with programs so they've got programs for each different phase and they've got their competition week program as well and exactly what the plan is there and they just basically you know pull them down um, off the shelf and and use that for for whatever it is. So we can plan that out in an annual cycle and and 
you know, it gets to the point where it's like, well, if it's a four-week gap or a six-week gap or a, or a two-week gap, in the end, they see the pattern. The pattern recognition kicks in. They know what to do. Based on the fact that earlier you said we don't lose those foundations as quickly as we lose some of the other stuff, if you've got, as you said, say a, a three- or four-week gap between big tournaments that they're trying to peak for, would you not go all the way back to general preparation sometimes? Would you just maybe slip into a two- or three-week specific preparation and then a pre-competition phase into the it's tournament? A, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, you've got to remember, though, there's still, the, there's still the screening injury prevention part that happens in general prep, which is pretty damn important. Um, so, no, I, I, I tend to think that um, inching forward is better than sprinting forward and then, and then falling backwards sometimes. So I, I do tend to still try and stick to the stick to the plan. And um, and like you say, you know, if it's four weeks, but then you then you're competing, if because the problem with the problem with golf is that the four week leads to another four week block and another four week block, and um, in the end, uh, you know, when do you do your general prep again? So I tend to just basically shrink it down as a concept. No, that's fine. As I said, uh, in the past, I've I have skipped that general prep phase from a golf skills perspective. So, but I mm. certainly get, I certainly get where you're coming from from a from a from a physical perspective. But again, we'll, we'll discuss this more when I get um, Belowski in to talk about from a golf skills perspective. But I think um, going back to working on technique at the start inside mm. of that three or four week gap might be might be too much. But um, yeah, mm. something that'll come up come up with him. Um, mm. It's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a strange space because it is such a a personalized program as well. So that's that sounds great for that tour player who's in the world top fifty who's trying to peak for those four or five tournaments a year. How do you go? And he can actually maybe, as you said, ride off a tournament or two to do a general prep phase. How do you tweak that plan again for the guy that's just trying to keep his tour card that? Every week's important for him. Um, so, so do I do I allow um, myself and my player to buy into the reactive mode? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Do you? <laughs> do you or not? I'm, I'm, I'm sure that. Well, what do you? What's, what's, you what's, what's your gut feel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that you, you don't. But how do you cope with that player that comes to you and says, "I have to play great this week because I'm trying to keep my tour card. I'm on the edge of." my tool card going. I have to play well this week. I can't hit the gym hard because I'm going to be sore and I can't play well when I'm sore. They should never be in that scenario. They, they just shouldn't be in that scenario. I mean, it would be odd because the only way that that would occur would be um, if someone's basically on the bubble with, you know, two months to go um, and then they start working with me for the first time. So what, to be honest, what I would do is I would basically ride it out with them, of course, and just give them the quick fixes. And basically most of that's going to be around, you know, like if I have if I, if I have uh, two hours to work with a player, and this has happened many times, and they're that, they're that tour player. Um, in fact, I have had players exactly use those words to me as well, where um, they've needed uh, – They've had a little bit of status, and they need to make every post a winner. So what we what we tend to do there is we basically um, go straight into fix it mode, and we work uh, purely on golf specific stuff, the stuff that's going to transfer straight away. So whatever physical capacities they have, we're going to get that to transfer back into the swing as much as we can. 
get them that extra 10 to 15 meters, make their body feel better, get rid of niggles, make sure they're fresh, um, enhance their recovery. We are. You're right. That's probably the, the time where you're going to start really focusing on that sort of, you know, phase three and phase four stuff, which is, you know, let's 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 optimize what you have and then we'll set the foundations um, the following year, the following season. Ab- absolutely. Of course I'm going to do that. But the, the plan is... Um, the plan is just to get a plan and stick to the plan um, and, and optimise it because ultimately they find themselves in that situation because their approach hasn't been good enough in the past. Um, so, again, I still say if you've got that player that's on the bubble and and they're there for you know a, a reason, then what we really need to do with that player is make damn sure that over the next three or four years they improve by 10 to 15%. Um, because there's a damn good chance that they haven't improved by 10 to 15% over the previous three to four years, and that's why they find themselves where they are. Now, that's a generalisation because sometimes you can be just lucky enough to get onto a tour, get a card. It's your first time on that tour. I mean, you know, you, gosh, can't we can't um, give anyone a hard time for that. It's a pretty good effort and it's a steep learning curve. So, um, yeah, certainly if people are in panic mode, you've got to help them through. <laughs> Yeah, no, completely agree. <laughs> I gradually talk them now for ledge once the season's over. But yeah. <laughs> so how long can you keep that peak for? So you've had you've got that peak. Mm. Is it a single week thing? Is it a four week thing? Is it a for some how long weird, can you hold that yeah, peak for? For some weird reason I think it's about three weeks. Yeah. It just it just seems to be about three weeks. If someone's playing well, it tends to be for, for about that amount of time. And then, uh, you know, there's just uh, some of the foundations slip a little bit. I mean, it could just be the game itself. Just You know, it could be psychological. It could be a few bad shots. It could be a few bad nights sleep. It could be a bad travel, you know, a, a challenging travel situation or whatever that might knock them off their perch. But for some, yeah, for some reason that they can ride that confidence for, for a while, can't they? And, um, you know, if someone plays well one week, I tell you, if you're a betting man, you jump on them the next week. Yeah. Um, if the if the bookie hasn't already, <laughs> so <laughs> and again that probably just highlights how good Tiger was. For example, if if he goes out on two and wins twelve tournaments for the year, um, and you're saying you can only hold that peak maybe two or three times per year for a couple of weeks at a time, he's for him to win that many times throughout a, a season is pretty impressive and shows that yeah. how good he actually was and or still is arguably. I don't know that you can only peak two or three times a year. Actually, I'm not. I'm not. I think. Here, here's the thing. I reckon. I reckon if I had. I'm just. This is on the fly. But I reckon every solid proper year of structured training and practice you put in, you possibly add an extra peak that you can achieve. You know, because once the foundations are in place, it takes roughly. This is this is what I see in physical training. It takes roughly twice the time and effort to build a capacity than it does to maintain a capacity. So once you get that sort of four or five years of really good quality foundational training from a skill acquisition point of view as well, you know, I think you earn the right to actually do more maintenance work and maintain where you are. Hence, you buy yourself several more peaks a year. Um, how long each peak can go for seems to be about about three weeks. Um, but uh, And there was there was a study on that that showed that actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I think, I think if the foundations become really, really strong, you can, you can go back to the well a few more times with just a bit of maintenance work. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so what are the common things that 
people screw up in this in this space if they they're trying to start a periodized plan and how do they screw it up how does the average person yeah essentially just screw it up good it, it's a good question i my i don't i don't know for sure but my my sense is that most people don't know what you and i have just discussed today they have no idea it even exists there's not a lot of this around. I mean, this is how I always look at training. And if you get yourself a really a highly qualified strength and conditioning coach, they'll be all over this. Um, a lot of coaches do understand about. Um, certainly, you'll get you'll get good periodized um, periodization with coaching and practice the, the, the regimes. You guys are really sharp on this stuff now. But um, I think I think until you engage properly in a structured training program, this stuff is a little bit irrelevant because you're just not doing enough stuff to actually make it worthwhile so if your concept is just doing a little bit of mobility and a little bit of in, and jumping on the treadmill or on the bike for a bit of endurance work and that's the extent to which you think you need to train then this stuff doesn't really get a look in but um but uh they you know a, a general rule of thumb i think is the harder you train the smarter you have to train and that's where these principles come in so if you're training harder and more often then this stuff a will mean that you won't break down or get too fatigued, and B will make sure that you actually you're maximising your benefits that you're getting. So um, there's probably just not enough sophisticated um, uh, physical preparation going on with golfers for this to be uh, really well known about. But I mean that could just be my perception. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I would I would be on the same kind of page. I think the average the average club golfer isn't aware of this stuff whereas mm. i think in other sports maybe because it's a bit more simplified because it is that single peak stuff so yeah you still see the the club afl the smaller country clubs still doing a pre-season of sorts into a into a season and trying to peak for the finals whereas in club land for golf you, you just don't see that so I th- yeah i think you've just hit on it there because um you know most most team sport athletes have this concept because of preseason, and they, they've seen it's been publicised in the media, and so the the club, you know, grassroots level uh, will will copy that. There's you know, follow the leader sort of stuff going on, and it's a good thing. Um, so they'll basically go through those cycles in an annual. They'll go through the annual cycle, um, and they're supported to do so in that group environment with group coaches that you know roughly know what they're doing, which is great. Um, whereas the challenge in golf is that you need to be even more sophisticated with it because you have to do it multiple times a year. So you have to run yourself through these cycles four, five, six times a year potentially, and you're not supported in a team environment and you don't have the coaches that are necessarily driving your physical fitness training. So hence it doesn't sort of um, get that much of a look in, I guess. So that, that key point for the golfers out there that are tuning in, if you do want to make the next step in your golfing career, whether you're that high-performance amateur that wants to turn pro or that pro that wants to get on a, on, a, on a tour out there, is find a professional trainer that understands this stuff to get a good, um, a good program done for you. Yeah, but basically, yeah. And I think um, because I think, yeah, like I said, I think uh, – you, the golf coaches, the PGA professionals, actually doing a really good job of that, practice-wise. Even with you know club golfers who may may be only practice a little bit, um, you know you've still got that encouraging encouraging them to um, you know not just do one-dimensional practice on the range. 
I think that really is filtering down uh, with club golfers that I work with. They they've got that concept, and it's coming from the PGA professional, you know, guiding it, gu- guiding that narrative. Um, yeah, so it's great to see. That's good. I've I've heard you bring up a a, a term that I'm. Uh, I'll be keen for you to explain to our listeners out there. I've heard you talk about tapering. What's what does that involve? It involves rest. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Why don't we just call it resting? Yeah. So t- tapering is just that classic thing of, um, and a lot of this has come from in- endurance sports, but um, yeah, just reducing your your volume. So vol- training volume is basically uh, intensity times duration. So. Um, if you're doing a five out of ten effort for an hour, you know you can go five times sixty equals three hundred units. Um, or if you're doing say an eight out of ten, but you're only doing it for twenty minutes, that's eight times twenty. That's one hundred and sixty. So the the five times sixty is greater volume. So we just reduce the the training volume with the the uh, intention being that um, you you're recovering and you get to freshen right up. So reducing your overall strain or load on the body. So that you can be as fresh as possible for competition. So yeah, it is. It is the fun. It's a bit everyone likes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. I'm. I'm gonna. Um, yeah, you'll have to tune out at part two with this when I talk about it because I'm gonna actually destroy that intensity term that you're talking about there because I Ooh. use it in a golf skills perspective. Intensity is like how much you're concentrating, so to speak, is as a yeah, simple way. It, you know. It, it's um it's a real issue um across the sciences like i'm even finding it with um i'm learning a lot about statistics at the moment and and there's often um two uh, three or four different um uses of the same word and it's very confusing and intensity can be that sort of level out of 10 it can be psychological it could be often in strength and conditioning it's talked about resistance level in terms of um how much weight you're lifting is intensity um, and I, I really don't like it when they mix terms like that. It don't, doesn't do anyone any favours. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. But as I said, as from a, from a golf coaching perspective, I like to use intensity as um, like f- 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 uh, full intensity for me would be pre-shot routine, target, hitting each shot as if you would be on the golf course, whereas mm. um, dialing down intensity would be the same club without a target, just working on technique. So that's where I tend to come oh, from. Actually, so- actually I, I see it, it. It actually meets quite well, though, because typically what you do, I mean, let's take a marathon runner. Um, in the, the last sort of week or two before a marathon, they will go at race pace or slightly above and drop down to sort of instead of doing 15 to 25 kilometres, they'll do 5 to 8K. So they'll reduce the volume and duration if you like but they'll actually increase the intensity so and doing speed work you know there's there's more intention to move so we we sort of we do in we can make it work i think mate we can make we we can we can because it's nice to blend the concepts um from the athlete's perspective that they're sort of doing the same thing with their training as they are with their practice or their physical versus their technical it's sort of nice if we can make that work so I come at that from a volume point of view as how many golf balls they're hitting. And then so they bring down the golf balls they're hitting. So if you're doing standard technique-based training, you might be hitting 40 or 50 balls per hour. Yeah. Whereas if you're using full pre-shot routine, that might drop to 20 balls per hour, but you're actually preparing the shot as you would on a golf course. So 
That's where I did yes, the Yes, yes. So, so there, therefore, that's why I created a new word, which is called, den- well, it's not my word, density. So density of training would be your shots per hour. Um, and, and density of training occurs with strength and conditioning in terms of reducing your rest intervals and getting more work done in a shorter period of um, time. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Because you would no, that's say, cool. that's right, because you would say that intensity would increase with less shots per hour. We've had this yep. before. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. I like it. So that's cool. Mate, I think I've covered all my questions that I had about periodization. Did you have anything that you had to add still that I haven't covered off on? I think we've got it covered everything. I think I'm ready to taper, actually. <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. <laughs> well, again, Scotty, thank you so much for coming in and chatting to me today. Um, we would uh, appreciate you guys hitting us up on the social media platforms to share your ideas on the on the podcast and what topics you want to hear from. So you, you can find Coaching Uncovered Podcast on Twitter at Coaching Pod, and you can find it on Facebook and Instagram at Coaching Uncovered. And you should find that with a, a quick little search, and also you can put yourself into the golf performance science facebook group and scotty will add you there so if you search for golf performance science on facebook you will find the group thank you you can come in there and share the conversations that we have on the podcast in there with a pretty cool group of golfers so thanks again scotty and everyone out there have a great day and we'll catch up soon